Welcome, welcome to the very first episode of One Thing Led to Another. This is a podcast all about stories and storytelling, where we interview authors and writers to try to figure out their writing processes, and also to see how they take one singular spur-of-the-moment idea and turn it into these enriching and engaging stories that we all love. We are joined by John Dedakis for the inaugural episode. John is the author of four journalistic thriller novels, pulling from his lengthy career as a journalist working for CNN for over 25 years. He also travels the country teaching others to write, as well as editing and reading manuscripts, so you can certainly expect him to have an extensive base of knowledge to share with us for today. So, without further ado, here is our interview with John Dedakis, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Hello? Hey, Noah, it's John. Hi, John. It's great to hear from you again. Thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. This should be fun. First things first, I was hoping that you could give a summary about, you know, who you are, your career, uh, some of your writings, so that those uh, those of our listeners who are unfamiliar can get a little bit of background into who you are. Well, let's see. I was a journalist uh, for about 45 years, mostly in broadcast. Started in radio, switched to television, uh, then was a writer at CNN, and uh, ended my journalism career about five years ago um, as an editor, a copy editor, which is sort of like being a goalie. And um, I was working on the Situation Room with uh, with Wolf Blitzer. But uh, when I became an editor back in the late 80s, it was kind of tedious and uh, not as creative as being a, a reporter. So that's when I started to experiment with uh, writing fiction. And it takes a while to make that transition from just the facts, ma'am, journalism to giving yourself the freedom to make it up, uh, because unlike what you may have heard, uh, making it up is a firing offense in journalism. So um, uh, I started to experiment with fiction and uh, have ended up writing uh, four mystery suspense novels with uh, Lark Chadwick, who's my uh, my female protagonist, who ends up going into journalism. So you you write what you know. So your first novel was Fast Track, and my question about that novel is how long did it take you from, you know, conception to actually publishing and finishing your first novel? It took 10 years <laughs> because I was still learning how to do it. And so uh, it went through like 14 major revisions because you know, each time you learn that it still needs work based on the feedback that you get and, and what I was learning about writing. Uh, so it took about it took about 10 years, 14 major revisions, and uh, the agent that I've got is the 39th agent that I queried. What was it about this novel that made you want to persist in writing it for 10 years and going through 14 revisions? I mean, you know, what what kept your motor rolling and, and prevented you from feeling, you know, discouraged? That's actually a pretty uh, interesting question because a lot of the writers I know, by the time they're finished with their novel, often with the first draft, they're sick of it and they want to move on with it. And I, I think part of it is that, 
I, I was interested in the subject matter, and I, and I think you draw from your own experiences. And in the case of Fast Track, it, there are sort of two personal experiences that I draw from. Um, one is a car-train collision that I witnessed when I was nine years old, and the other is the suicide of my sister uh, in 1980. And so, you know, those are two very personal uh, experiences that I then use to fashion into, you know, a bigger story. So I guess there was that need, I suppose you could call it an emotional need, to be able to craft a story that had some redemptive value to it. You know, John, what you said there reminded me of something that uh, the screenwriter John Truby said in his book, The Anatomy of Story, where when planning a story, be sure you're picking one that will change your life. Uh, would you say that your Lark Chadwick books have done that for you? I think they did, but not in the way I expected, and, and I suppose that's, uh, that's why it's been interesting as well. Um, I would say being a writer... Um, allows you or really requires you to dip more deeply into yourself and to understand yourself better. And I think self-knowledge is uh, a transformative, a transforming experience as well because I think you become more alert not only to the sort of inner nuances of your psychology, but you become, I think, more aware of your surroundings and more aware of what makes a good story. Uh, you become more aware of interactions between people, the way people talk to each other. And then just the act of having a book published opens doors that I never expected to happen. Um, for instance, in my case, um, I've gotten a lot more speaking opportunities and I discovered that there's sort of a teacher lurking inside of me. And so one of the things that was probably the biggest surprise is that now I help people learn how to write their own novels. I, I in a sense, uh, can, can help them find the stories that are in them and then show them through the mistakes I made how to um, make it happen and sort of look at all the moving parts uh, uh, so that you can sort of help them build uh, order out of chaos. Okay, going back to Fast Track and, and that process, that 10-year process with 14 revisions, when you were trying to sell that to publishers and editors, what was your elevator pitch for that novel? Because the, the selling of a novel is often part the most difficult part of the process of creating a novel for young writers. Well, the, the pitch sort of evolved. Um, and, and, and the one I've got, I, I usually can deliver in about 50 seconds or less, um, because you don't, you, you really don't want to give it all away. You want to entice and engage. And so I've got variations on this theme, uh, which I often use at like a Barnes and Noble or, you know, at a place where you're, you know, where people are really, you know, in the mood to, you know, find a book. And so I basically tell them this book is, is about a young woman who's trying to figure out what to do with her life. And she solves the mystery of the car train collision that orphaned her as an infant. And it begins when she finds the body of the aunt who raised her from uh, childhood because, you know, her parents were killed in a car accident. And so that trauma 
launches her on a search to find out more about her past. And so she goes to the small town in southern Wisconsin where the accident happened, gets a newspaper clipping, and discovers to her astonishment that she's the survivor, the miracle baby of a car-train collision that orphaned her. But she didn't know anything about the car-train aspect. All she knew is that her parents were killed in a car accident. So she convinces the newspaper editor to let her do a follow-up story about the crash. Two of her sources are the mayor and the sheriff. They're running against each other for Congress. The election is one week away, and each guy has a secret that will unravel the mystery. So did all that just stem from one spur-of-the-moment idea? Can, can you think of like the moment when you realized, hey, this might make a good novel? I think that it evolved. I mean, the initial idea came from a writing exercise about a personal experience. So when I was writing about this car train collision that I that I witnessed, um, and this, I suppose, talks to the power of the subconscious, as I was writing the details of the story 40 years after it happened, I remembered uh, a radio news report I heard at the time of the accident about a car train collision in which an infant survived. And I began to sort of play what if. What if that kid grew up and 25 years later wanted to understand more about her parents? And so that's how the initial story uh, came about. And then I think a lot of it sort of evolved in the writing of it. Um, I do, it's been so long now that I don't remember all of the creative details. I do know that the story changed a lot. You know, the opening scene was not the opening scene initially. And, um, but in revisions, you know, things get turned around and reordered and things like that. But, um, a lot of the writing is an evolutionary kind of experience, um, where, where some of the story aspects emerge in the writing process. The act of writing at least in my experience, is like tapping into your subconscious like a straw, and it emerges and uh, manifests itself in the writing process. So it evolves over time, I'd say, is probably the, you know, the best way I can explain it. So then building off that idea of evolution, I mean, Lark has been your main protagonist for four novels now, five forthcoming. Did you ever expect her to be the center of the story for so long? I mean, or were you surprised by the success and then just felt the need to continue writing the story? Or did you have the overall plot planned out already for multiple books? Definitely surprised because I only intended to write one novel. I mean, it was like there was a need to write it, but it just felt like there was sort of that, you know, that story momentum that was building, that pressure that was building and the desire to, to write something. But then the more I wrote, the better I got to know Lark and, um, you know, other ideas evolved and emerged so that I could see where the story could continue and so you know i've got it was like when one um story finished there was at least another one waiting to pick up where the last one left off so by the time i finished bullet in the chamber which is the fourth novel the one that's out now um i i picked up where i left off about six months after you know this story ends lark is a white house correspondent and given the current 
state of political affairs. I have the working title for this fifth novel that I'm working on. It's, uh, it's called Fake, F-A-K-E, as in fake news, only I have to keep changing the plot because, because the, you know, you, you can't make this stuff up. It keeps, it keeps, the real, the real world keeps changing and so I have to kind of, you know, change and, and evolve to, to, to sort of stay ahead of it or, uh, be different from it. I'm not writing a polemic, but I am troubled by the whole fake news situation. And I want to write something that addresses that in a way that has more of a universal theme that I think a person can relate to whether they're Republican or Democrat. So after the 10-year process that it took to create Fast Track, the first novel, it seems as if your your cadence with producing and writing the new novels has been increasing. So what habits, what bad habits did you have when you started writing, and have those have you kept those? Have you alleviated those? Have you corrected those? Oh, I'm not even sure I've I've done the correcting. I, I think that <laughs> I think that I've perfected procrastination. Um, I, I think that I mean I appreciate the the perception that you have that the cadence <laughs> has has picked up, but when you really look at it, I mean there the, there are at least a couple of years between two books, and um, you know I I started writing fake about a year and a half ago, and I haven't even finished writing the first draft. I know how it's supposed to end, but. Um, you know, I walk away from it and let it fester a bit and ruminate about it. And I've discovered that that's not so much a mistake as it is part of the way the creative process is. I, I think a lot of writers or wannabe writers get discouraged when, you know, they they feel they have to be a writer if they sit in front of the computer and bang out a thousand words a day and that that makes them successful. And it's true, you know, you can certainly make a lot of progress that way. But if you're like me, um, uh, the tendency is to slough off and, you know, a thousand words turns into 750 and then 500 and pretty soon you're not writing at all. And then that's a recipe for feeling like a total failure. And so when you feel like that, uh, I think a lot of people who really have it in them to write effectively give up and feel that they're not really a writer because they lack the discipline. But my argument is that if you're thinking about the story, if it's still got you, you know, in its clutches, if it's still got you thinking about it, um, ruminating is the same as writing. It's just not sitting in front of the computer banging it out. So I found that the bad habit is really something I can harness and make into something that's effective. So procrastination is my friend. The success of the novels, now you have a loyal reader base, and as you move along with the plot and the story, how often do you consider their opinion versus what you want to do with the story and the characters? Because there is a business to writing, and, and your target audience and target demographics opinion is something to consider. Yeah, it is, and I, and I think that when I first started out, my tendency was to make life easy for Lark. And I discovered that um, it may be easy for Lark and consequently for me, but it's a boring read. And I can remember, I think I was writing uh, Troubled, I think it was Troubled Water, the third novel. And I actually reached a point in the, in the creative process where I was bored. And 
I literally had to make up something that was stunning and astounding and violent uh, in order to entertain myself and move the story along. And I look back on it and I and I read it and I go, well, as contrived as I felt that it was at the time, it really does ignite the story at a time when it needs to happen. So you're right, it is a business, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every story has to have a car chase or a shootout or, or something like that. Um, if you're an effective writer, even some sort of uh, internal psychological tectonic shift can be the kind of uh, plot device or pivot point or plot twist that can move the story along. I think that the secret is that good storytelling requires there to be several unexpected uh, turn of events that will nudge the story in a new and unexpected direction. It's just what makes the story interesting. So it, it need not be a bestseller to be effective. It just needs to hold the reader's interest. So where did this desire to write a thriller novel come from? Was that the genre that you found yourself reading as you went through life? Oh, you know, the dirty little secret is that I don't think I was much of a reader to begin with. And I, and I think it probably goes back to, you know, elementary school where uh, and, and beyond. I mean, when you go to when you get into high school to have you read Shakespeare and all the, you know, the good stuff, you know, the to because that's that's literary. But at least for me, it was boring. And so I didn't really find myself interested in reading reading fiction uh, until college when I'd read The Grapes of Wrath for uh, a college American history class. And it was like it brought history alive, the history of the, of the Dust Bowl. And so uh, I, I really have to confess that I never was much of a reader. In, I mean, I would read you know, political stuff and nonfiction and biographies and, and stuff like that. But fiction never really grabbed me uh, until much later in life. And literary fiction was just way over my head, and I didn't understand it and didn't appreciate it until I actually started to write. And then, you know, I, I found myself more interested. So uh, I, I even when, when I wrote Fast Track, I didn't have a particular genre in mind because I didn't even know what genre was. And so in the rewrite process, I think probably the, the key moment where there was sort of this light bulb moment was when um, I lived, we lived in Atlanta at the time, and the neighborhood that we lived in, the Princeton Lakes neighborhood, they had a book club. And the women in this book club read my novel or the manuscript over the summer, and then they let me sit in on their critique. And, of course, I write as a woman, and there's 25 women taking apart my novel. And the thing I learned from that, I learned a lot of things, but probably the, the thing I learned the most was that I had three subplots that I didn't need and that if I took them out, my novel would go from a 150,000-word mishmash to a 75,000-word mystery novel. And so the genre emerged in one of the later rewrites. And so I, in a sense, stumbled onto the genre, uh, not ever having really read or appreciated it much.
So with, so with your lengthy career as a journalist and an editor, do you think that experience with, you know, finding beats, looking for angles, and, and, and assigning stories, do you think that there's a tie between that and, and planning out the plot points of your novels? I, I think that, I mean, there, there is, definitely there is. I think a person with a journalism background has a leg up because, uh, because good journalism is, is storytelling. Um, it's, it's, ident and it's usually, and usually what makes a good story is the people angle, you know, that personal angle. Um, you know, even esoteric, you know, political philosophies come alive when embedded in, uh, the way a person lives. So, you know, there's that. There's the storytelling aspect of it through the lives of characters. Um, and then there's the, the writing of it and good journalism is tight writing uh, in you know even newspapers that uh, uh, can go longer than a broadcast journalism script I mean broadcast journalism you know radio news stories are maybe 20 seconds or 30 um, and if it's a if it's a reporter package maybe 45 seconds um, if it's an if it's a, a, a package on television you know often they're only a minute and a half that's nothing um, a newspaper story, maybe 400 words. Uh, a magazine story, maybe 2,000 words. Um, but uh, a, a novel, you know, can go 75,000 words. And yet what makes a good, interesting read is if your sentences are lean and clean and tight and clear. And, and so journalism is the 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 discipline i guess you could say that a recognizes what a good story is and then is able to capture it in a way that's lean and clean and tight when working within the mystery genre how do you go about making sure the big reveal or the ending is unexpected but not so much so that it seems ridiculous but then on the flip side making sure that it's not something that that's predictable or that you can basically see coming from halfway through exactly um i i sweat that one and um i, I before i show it to anybody you know i i really go through a couple of drafts first or at least two drafts um to to do it the way i think you know, you, you want to lay down clues so that, you know, the ending doesn't come out of nowhere and yet is a surprise at the same time. So that if a person goes back, they can see, oh, I see this clue. Yes, now I see it makes sense. Um, but the thing that I fear the most is that someone is going to be able to figure it out. So the real test then is when my, my beta readers, my test readers will look at a manuscript and give me the feedback that I need. Um, and the thing that is a relief most of the time is that even people who pride themselves on having been able to figure out the ending before it got there tell me that they were surprised by the ending. And so, you know, that, I mean, you can't please everybody, and I'm sure that there are some people who've been able to figure it out, but it's always worrisome for me that it's going to be so obvious that I've telegraphed the ending and uh, and yet people uh, tell me that they're surprised. So that is a fear. It's definitely a fear, but so far, so good. 
So where do you see Lark going in, you know, the next novels going forward? I mean, you made her 25 years old, so presumably there's a lot left for her to do in her life, I mean, as a character. I do. In fact, when I first started writing and was entertaining the idea of a series, I remember reading somewhere that if you're going to have a series character, don't have them be in their 90s. Um, And so I made her young. And it helped that I had a lot of uh, young women friends in my life who, you know, were, uh, I, I knew how they, I knew what their lives were like, and, and they were, you know, helpful readers as well. So uh, I, I do foresee, you know, several more books, but um, I've been flirting with the idea of a more literary, a literary fiction, and I've actually started, oh, um, organizing some ideas for a memoir. I've been hesitating on that only because memoirs, I've always thought you had to be old to write a memoir. And while I'm certainly older, I don't feel old. And uh, and yet there's, when I look back, there's certainly a lot of things that have happened and that there are a lot of life lessons that I've learned that I'd, that I'd like to pass on. So I'm at least flirting with a memoir as well. Um, so I, uh, I see, I see, I see other avenues and more writing ahead. But um, I also edit people's manuscripts, and I think that kind of keeps me interested as well in uh, being sort of a writing coach. So it's not all writing, but there's definitely going to be more, Lord willing. In your experience with editing news stories and now, you know, writing novels, reading and editing other people's manuscripts, what do you think is the most common mistake that writers make when it comes to the plot and the story itself? Oh, man. I mean, there are a lot of them, but probably the absolute biggest one. And, you know, from your own experience and what you've learned, that this is probably true. And that is people tell the story instead of show the story. Um, More often than not, you know, the first couple of chapters are a big data dump of backstory. And what I think makes a better story is when you dive right in and create a scene of a couple of people talking to each other or something happens to the protagonist and they have to go forward from there as opposed to, you know, telling the reader all about where they went to college and how many times they were married and, you know, all this kind of stuff. We care about that kind of stuff as we get to see the character's life unfold. It's how we live life. We live life in conversation with other people and we learn about them uh, as they sprinkle details of their life uh, into the conversation as our relationship with them goes forward. Um, so I think that it's, I think that storytelling is more effective if you think cinematically. Um, could movies start with something happening right away? And it's only later that we learn some of the backstory. Um, so I'd say that's probably the absolute biggest mistake is that people are telling and not showing. 
and the more I look into it, the more I read it, the the more I I found out. And this, uh, there's a big problem for particularly fantasy and science fiction writers when it comes to the rabbit hole of world building. Some writers will become so obsessed with the world that they're hoping to create the story, and then they completely lose the plot and the story itself. Even though you're writing in a more realistic fiction way, do you find yourself getting into those rabbit holes of detail? Doing everything that I criticize, I've just criticized others for doing. You know, I do, I, I litter them with cliches. Um, there's too much show and not enough, te- there's too much, too much tell and not enough show. Um, the characters are wooden. Um, the di- I, I do write a lot of dialogue. I mean, I think because I've been a broadcast journalist, you're writing for the ear. So dialogue comes more easily. Um, but I would say in my case, Noah, it's a, it's a situation where um, description is harder for me um, because that's literary and that's not really my strength. And so um, I'll, my first draft will actually be more dialogue heavy, and it's only in the rewrite that I sort of sprinkle the fairy dust of action and description and I keep it as lean as possible because if I go on for too long, I'll be discovered as uh, uh, not being as effective <laughs> and not being as, as, as skillful and effective as I could be. So I try to have fewer words do more heavy lifting. With writing a character like Lark, you know, a young woman over the course of four, now soon to be five novels, how do you manage her character development because she's young she's 25 there's going to be development but how do you go about managing that development so that it's realistic and understandable but then also how do you not fall into an issue that a lot of writers run into with simply creating plot points to reach the end of the story or to further along the story oh you've just zeroed in on something i think is is really important um i teach a writing class at a writing center uh, in the D.C. area, and one of my students uh, uh, who took the class uh, writes political thrillers, but she said she reported to the class that she never really finishes them because she gets about halfway into it and gets bored with it. And she said in almost sort of a eureka moment during the class, she said, I think the reason that the stories." I'm writing for me is that I'm creating plots and then just throwing characters into them. And we, as we discussed this, agreed that good plots come out of character as opposed to the other way around. And so um, uh, Lark is real to me because she's really trying to figure out her life. And that's been the experience of the young women in my life. I mean, I worked at CNN for 25 years. That's 25 years worth of young women interns, mostly women, who are in their early 20s and mid-20s. And they would tell me their stories about their boyfriends and their career hopes and their families. And um, the, the, the common thread is that they're trying to figure it out. And, you know, they're trying to figure it out in the middle of a uh, Me Too movement. They're trying to figure it out in a career, in a journalism career that's uh, uh, in a profession that's changing and evolving. 
Um, they're figuring it out in the midst of an economy that uh, has burdened them with a lot of, you know, uh, college debt. And so, um, you know, romance is elusive. Guys are just uh, a mystery. <laughs> and so listening to them figure out their lives has been instructive. And so Lark as a character is evolving and growing. You know, she starts out pretty impulsive, has anger issues, and, um, you know, she learns from making mistakes, which is how we learn as uh, as individuals. Um, and the more challenges she faces, the, the more she has to learn. So she's conquered some of her problems, and yet they reappear, you know, maybe two books later. It's like you have to relearn lessons that you already have learned. So I think, though, the bottom line is that good characters um, have feet of clay. They're not perfect, just like we're not perfect. We have weaknesses and struggles. And so um, having Lark face her shortcomings is part of, I think, what makes um, uh, her interesting and the stories interesting, too, at least to me. You mentioned earlier with Fast Track when you brought it to the you know writers group in Atlanta and how you got rid of three subplots that they said you didn't need. I imagine that you have to do that for all your other novels that you just have to just cut some content out. But does that cut content find its way into your other novels? Well, I know I they're still there, and I think that in this fifth novel, maybe a couple of them might reemerge. Although the worry I have is that I'm throwing too much into it again, but uh, it's too soon to know. Um, but no, and and I've tried having idea files, you know, where you get an idea and you write it down and you file it. I've come back to those, and I've in many cases I look at them and go, "What was I thinking?" And yet the ideas that that stick with me, um, that manifest themselves in future books, are the ones that I didn't write down. I just find myself thinking about them. And so I feel that a good idea is one you don't have to write down because it's it's it just stays inside of you and gnaws at you and you worry about it and think about it. And so, you know, the ones that get jettisoned, if they're really worth exploring, you know, they'll reappear. And that's going to bring me to the final question for today, John, and that is simply, in terms of story, what is one thing that the listeners of One Thing Led to Another need to know about creating and telling a good story? Whew. I would say, listen to the stories people tell. Listen to the way people talk. And it's not like you're taking notes, but um, just get other people talking. I think a lot of times I've noticed that people like to talk about themselves, and consequently they never really bother to explore their curiosity with other people. And I think we're missing out on that because our horizons never really expand as much as they could, uh, and that by asking other people about themselves – um, that's really where the storytelling lies because all of those stories then embed themselves in your subconscious. So when it comes time for you to write, um, you may not be thinking consciously of the person that you ran into, you know, who is your Uber driver or something like that, but 
something that that person said is embedded in your subconscious and then will manifest itself as you write. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you again for joining us today, John, and being our very first guest on One Thing Led to Another. I wish you the best of luck on your forthcoming novel and any other professional endeavors that you find yourself on. Thank you. Well, I'm honored, Noah, and thank you. You this, this, The time flew. So that concludes the very first episode of One Thing Led to Another. I want to thank you so much for listening in. Hopefully you learned something in our conversation with John Judakis. He's been wonderful in my own writing experience, providing great tips and tricks. So hopefully you can use some of those in your writing. Uh, you'll be able to catch this episode on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to drop us a line, make a comment, give some feedback, send a gift, uh, you can find all of this on noahfinko.net. That is my website, as well as one thing led to another.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So, thank you again for joining us today, and I cannot wait until next time. And before you go, do remember that storytelling is best done together. Thanks again. See you next time.